This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. I've certainly seen in the context of my work as a physician taking care of patients that have speech and language disorders that um, it can be absolutely devastating. And I really started thinking about the mechanisms, you know, thinking about what are the computations, what are the algorithms that the brain must compute in order for us to have language and speech. And it's just been one thing after another in terms of trying to peel back layer by layer uh, how this really complex and amazing system works. Now it really is starting to look like it could be practically used um, perhaps in the future to help people who are paralyzed and have lost the ability to communicate um, because of things like stroke or neurodegenerative conditions like Lou Gehrig's uh, disease. That's Dr. Edward Chang, a neurosurgeon who operates on the brains of patients with tumors or intractable epilepsy. But during surgery, while the brains of his patients are exposed, and with their permission, he's able to record and decode the signals their brains generate while speaking. His goal is a device that will recreate their speech so that one day people who have lost the ability to speak will have the ability to be heard. This is really exciting for me to talk with you today because you're dealing with what I think is sort of the bedrock of communication which is speech, right? How we process speech. What, what happens in our brains when we talk to each other? Is that, is that mainly what you're working on now? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the main focus of our work is just trying to understand how the brain allows us to have this conversation that we're having right now. Um, the idea that you're hearing the words and um, transforming them into meaning and then the opposite process by which uh, thoughts are being translated into movements of the vocal tract to produce the words. What got you interested in speech and examining speech through the parts of the brain that are activated when we speak? What got you into that? Basic curiosity, just to be honest with you, I think it's really poorly understood how the brain allows us you know, to have this really amazing behavior. And I've certainly seen in the context of my work as a physician, taking care of patients that have speech and language disorders, that um, it can be absolutely devastating. And I really started thinking about the mechanisms, you know, thinking about what are the computations, what are the algorithms that the brain must compute in order for us to have language and speech. And, you know, it's just been one, one thing after another in terms of trying to peel back layer by layer, uh, how this really complex and amazing system works in the brain. So what have you been able to accomplish so far? You've identified all of the ways we articulate words in the English language. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So a lot of our work has moved beyond the question of like, where in the brain does this happen? I can tell you right now, the where question we've known for uh, many years, which is that this bit of uh, cerebral cortex 
the gray matter in the brain. Now you're, you're pointing above your left ear. That's right. And it's in that one area that speech is decomposed into all of the different elements that we care about when we understand speech. So that includes all of the different consonants and vowels. How many are there? How many distinct parts of speech in the English language have, have you identified? In English, for example, there are about between 34 to 42 different what we call phonemes. These are the um, individual consonants and vowels that give rise to all possible words in, in English. And uh, Every language has a specific uh, set of phonemes in its inventory. We've been able to essentially look at the code of all of these different phonemes in English. And what we found is that in this particular part of the brain that's a, above your left ear, there's even a smaller set of elements in those uh, 40 phonemes, what we call acoustic phonetic features. These are properties that are associated with movements of different parts of the vocal tract. For example, when you have your lips together and you release it, when you say something like pop, that requires the movement of your lips and the release of your lips and the air that comes through your lips to create that p sound. Um, that's very distinct from the d sound that's created when the front of your tongue actually goes to the back of your front upper teeth. If you just take one word like sympathy, just to pick a word at random, sympathy has so many parts to it. We're going to have to break it down, you know, sound by sound, but that first sound, the s, is what we'd call a, a, a fricative. And the way that you produce that s sound is by bringing the, uh, the mouth close and bringing the teeth together, but not completely occluded, so that when the air comes through your teeth, it creates a high-frequency uh, turbulent sound. That noise energy is what we call a fricative, and it's from that very precise placement of the two teeth when we uh, make that in sympathy. Other sounds in sympathy, for example, uh, the p sound requires that the lips come together and then are, when the lips are released, that burst of air gives the characteristic p sound. The vowels, the uh and pathy, requires the tongue to be in a low back position. And so we've just talked about three of the sounds of the, um, you know, uh, half dozen sounds that are in, in that word. And all of that is happening within less than, you know, um, you know, less than 500 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds. And it's extremely complex, extremely precise process. And we don't appreciate it because we all take it for granted because we do it so well and so effortlessly. And most people aren't even aware of what's going on in their vocal tract or their mouth when they're speaking but it really is quite amazing. You're able to distinguish between pop and what, where, where the lips almost come together on what. The listener can do this with us and then get a sense of the difference. Wa and pa, they're so similar, but you, you've got different locations in the brain to distinguish between those two? That's right. There's a map, actually, that corresponds to all of those different sounds and the properties that are associated with those sounds. And that's what we've been working on 
very hard for the last 10 years is trying to understand, you know, essentially how, what that map looks like, uh, what are the properties of that map, and then how does that, that population of um, neural activity together as sort of like an orchestra come together to represent um, things like syllables and, and words and, and meaning beyond that. So how do you identify you have to put very tiny little probes into the brain to distinguish one area from another when they're right next to each other, right? Yeah, that's right. And so one of the main ways that we've been able to make these kind of discoveries is really in the setting of brain surgeries where patients have volunteered some of their time as uh, part of their workup for things like uh, conditions like epilepsy, where we have clinical reasons for needing to implant electrodes on the brain surface, sometimes hundreds at a time, small electrodes that are really just on the brain surface. But each one of those electrodes is monitoring the electrical activity, the communication that is used by uh, the neurons that are underneath the electrodes. And what's been really amazing to see is that when you look at one electrode, its signal and what it cares about is very different than the electrode that is just a millimeter uh, away. Mm. And, um, what it's telling us is that even though both of them care about speech, they're tuned to different parts of speech. So one of these might be tuned to the puh sound and pop versus the duh sound and dad, for example. I think it's probably important to point out that when you open up somebody's skull and, and make the the brain available to uh, to probes. And that's what you do, right? You expose the brain itself. It's, as you said, it's in the course of an operation for a reason. It's not experimental. You're performing a therapy on somebody for something like, uh, as you said, seizures. But in any case, I, I was present in one brain operation and I was shocked to see that the patient was awake the whole time and telling the surgeon what she felt when he touched different parts of the brain. He said, what do you feel here? She said, my toe. <laughs> and the, the idea was he, he had a better idea of what not to take out because he was taking out something bad in her brain, but he would, wanted to take out only the bad stuff. So he was feeling around for, he wanted, didn't want to destroy the feeling in her toe while he took out the bad stuff. But I, I bring that up to reassure people that what you do is not, a, it's not intrusive, and B, it's not painful. Is that, am I right about that? Well, I mean, I think sometimes people can have a headache, but, um, but generally it's very well tolerated, and you're right. It is absolutely um, incredible that, you know, we routinely do do surgeries. I specialize, in, in fact, on brain mapping in awake surgeries, and the way that we can do that is primarily because um, most of the pain receptors are in the scalp in the skin, which we can numb up uh, quite well with um, lidocaine and, and numbing medication. So there's this very, very important mission that we have with every surgery, which is um, not only to identify where the pathology is, where the bad, the bad problems are going on, whether it be a brain tumor or a seizure focus, but the equally important goal is to figure out where we have critical functions like language or movements. Um, representing the brain so that we can focus on removing the bad part and then 
uh, protecting the critical parts that we need for our, our daily function. That's what we call brain mapping. And um, a lot of our work has been in that context of uh, taking the brain mapping research forward. In the old days, it was really just about where would you find, uh, where is language in the brain? Um, and like I alluded to earlier, uh, we've moved on past that question to think about how does it work as opposed to just where is it located? What's really amazing about this to me is how you've been able to read the activation in parts of the brain while a person is speaking and then play that back once you've identified the parts. The person doesn't need to be speaking. You can hear what the person would have said if the person were there to say it because you've got, you're using the activated parts to do it. I'm, I'm describing this in a clumsy way because I find it so amazing. It kind of dazzles me. How would you describe it? Well, I think you're doing a pretty good job actually describing it. But basically, after years of figuring out how this code works, after seeing that we basically could construct a code for every speech sound in English, we asked a very simple question, which was, could you reconstruct what someone said or what someone heard? based on the brain activity itself? And the short answer is yes, we can do that now. We can now develop algorithms where just looking at the brain activity, we can reconstruct and understand what someone heard or what they said just based on the brain activity itself. So do I have this right? You have an algorithm in the computer that produces sound based on the activation of certain areas that you have translated into a code. You feed the code into the computer and the computer comes up with a voice speaking those words. Is that roughly it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. So do you have an example of that you can play for us? Yeah, I do. Um, let me pull it up right here. I found this just amazing. So, what you're going to hear is a sentence that we synthesized from brain activity. And then after you hear the sentence that was synthesized from brain activity alone, you'll hear what the person originally said. The print that you are seeking is not available in books. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. The print that you are seeking is not available in books. And now, of course, it's much easier to understand what the machine is saying when you hear what she says. But I assume that this is an early draft of your ability to do this, and you'll be able to get plainer speech eventually. Is that, is that what you're aiming for and what you think you'll be able to do? This is um, not just an early draft. It's really like the first proof of principle. Mm that this is possible. And there are so many different ways that um, we are working to improve the signal. There's a lot of things technologically that we have to do in terms of the electrodes, the sensors themselves, but also the algorithms that we're using to decode it. But um, I think we're at a cusp right now uh, of, of a breakthrough where the sounds are starting to be intelligible. Um, we're at that cusp where, you know, just a couple of years ago, it 
was very hard to, to argue that any of this could be useful or intelligible, but now it really is starting to look like it could be practically used, um, perhaps in the future, to help people who are paralyzed and have lost the ability to communicate. Does that mean that you would be able at this point to reproduce the sound that would occur if a person could speak when they think of the words silently? In other words, have you, have you done anything like that yet? Well, we're working towards that, Alan, and um, it's, it's a huge uh, project that our laboratory has undertaken because we are moving, we're working very hard to try to uh, create a device, basically, a kind of technology that will allow people to communicate who've lost that through a brain injury or paralysis. And um, I think what you've described is exactly right on. The only modification, I would say, is that um, we're not necessarily decoding what people are thinking. It's really more about translating the brain activity associated with what they're really trying to say. That's an important distinction because random thoughts are not associated with making speech out of them. At least they don't seem to be. Absolutely, yeah. But if a person has the intention of speaking, is it possible for someone who doesn't have the ability to speak, have nevertheless the intention to speak and have those areas activated as if he had the ability? You're absolutely right on. So the intention turns out to be crucial actually, for any of this to work. And um, we haven't had a lot of success in, in decoding what people are just thinking about, but we've had um, a lot of progress on when the intention is there. And so last year, we started a clinical trial, starting enrolling uh, patients who uh, basically have suffered stroke or um, neurodegeneration in the brain, um, to apply this technology. And the preliminary results are encouraging. These are in folks who have lost the ability to speak and cannot communicate in any other way. And um, it looks like a lot of this ability is preserved um, if the certain parts of the brain are, are still intact and are involved for uh, that intention to speak. And that neural code is still there. We, um, we're making great progress in figuring out how to translate that into something that will be useful. Is it invariable enough from brain to brain where these locations are so that you could make a device that with very little adjustment could be used by a vast number of people? That's what we'd love to do. That's what we'd really love to do, which is that um, have enough knowledge about that variability and then be able to calibrate the device to an individual without having to go through hours and hours and hours of, of training, you know, the device to work. And they wouldn't have um, to have their skull cut open. Well, that part we haven't solved yet. So, oh. you know, so <laughs> that part, that part, it turns out to still be, necessary because you can't get the to, signals that clearly if, if you haven't got direct contact with the brain right we still haven't we have yet a lot of people are working on it and um but 
The truth is, is that as of now, we still don't have a way to read out that brain activity high enough resolution without actually putting the electrodes um, either into the into the cortex or directly on it. And so in parallel, we're trying to figure out, you know, if it does require cutting into the skull and having a surgery to implant a device, you know, how do we do that as safely as possible? And, I'm, and I feel very optimistic that we do have ways to make that um, very safe in the future. Uh, but all of this stuff is happening in parallel. Mm. And um, I can tell you that there are a lot of people who really do need it, need the technology, whether it, it, it can be read out directly from the scalp or or if it does require a procedure to make it work. Do you use some of the techniques that are on my phone when it predicts what I'm probably going to say next? Yes, we use all of those and more. Every tool that we can throw at this um, that's possible that can help you know, accelerate this, we are. And in particular, just to be a little bit more specific, um, one of the tools that we use are, are these tools called language models. These are essentially algorithms that um, are based on the probabilities and statistics of one word that follows the next in English. And so that actually turns out to help uh, our decoder work pretty well because the decoder is not perfect. Uh, it's far from it. And um, what you can do with that, just like our texting, for example, oftentimes it's not perfect. So you can use that probability and knowledge about English language to actually make it more accurate and more intelligible. When we come back from our break, I explore with neurosurgeon Edward Chang the possibility of a future where reading brain signals could lead to being able to read someone's thoughts. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Edward Chang. I wanted to pick up on the fact that his goal is to read out what a person intends to say not what he or she is thinking. So I think it's reassuring that this is not going to lead to a machine that reads our thoughts. I mean, if everybody got to carry around a little app on their phone and they knew you were thinking, see you when we get back to the city, are you kidding? I can't, you'll be lucky if I remember your name. <laughs> Right. Or even worse, I don't trust the government right this minute. That's certainly not our intention to build anything like that. And like I said earlier, you know, we're 
far from being able to do anything remotely close to that. Fortunately, you know, I think we can deploy this in a way that will be useful for people uh, when they they have that intention to speak, not just when they're thinking about something. But humans are curious, and if they can figure something out, maybe not you, right. but somebody in some garage someplace, yeah. if they can figure out a marker, not for intending to speak, but for thinking in words. Right. And we sometimes do think in words. I Most of the time I think in words, at least I, I, I think so. Do you think that it's possible that someone will find a marker similar to the marker of intending to speak? I do think it's possible. And so I, I think that, you know, we need to have a dialogue actually about when that day comes, what do we do with that kind of knowledge and information so that it's constructive and not, not dangerous? It really is interesting, isn't it, that so many, maybe, maybe most of the advances we make that are really groundbreaking like this, that changes the way we interact with each other or with nature, have a dark side to them. Do you look forward actually to leading a discussion on this? You're at the forefront, it seems, of where it'll come from. You'd be a good person to raise the questions of ethical and moral concerns. I I do look forward to it. And um, to be honest, it's been part of the discussion of the work really since day one. We're going to have to think, and it's not just me, I think that we have to think in a much broader group as a society, uh, not just the scientists or engineers that are developing the technology, but as, as a much, much broader group of stakeholders, you know, where we want this to go and to steer it in a way that, you know, again, is constructive. And what I mean by that is that if in the future there is a way to have that kind of resolution, that we really able to understand the basis of human thought, to decode it, the implications for that in the medical sense are immense, absolutely immense, you know, for things like psychiatric illness mm. or neurologic disease, for computer science. It's, it's just even hard for me to fathom actually how uh, profound that kind of knowledge would be. So I do think it's never too early to engage in a conversation and to be talking about it regularly and, and frequently. And you're hinting at something I hadn't even thought about, that the ability to read someone's thoughts while it can be a disastrous invasion of our privacy, it could also be a great therapeutic tool, I guess, to diagnose schizophrenia or uh, paranoia or even depression, do you, do you think? Yeah, to, to uh, diagnose and, and to understand, to really just understand how these conditions are born out of uh, brain activity that is, is going to arrive. It's so important to understand that. And I think we're quite far from um, some of the mechanisms of, of these conditions. And so, you know, like I said, I, you know, I, I think we should always keep it in, in the discussion and continue to to talk about it frequently and how do we want to guide the technology towards constructive applications. It's amazing that you're in touch with the parts of the brain that are right now enabling me to talk to you. And to such an extent that I remember reading in 
something you wrote or an article about you in which they described your contacting, making touching the part of the brain or stimulating the part of the brain that actually activated the larynx. And the person, when you touched that part of the brain or activated it somehow, the person went, ah, or oh, or yeah. they actually emitted a sound. Right. I didn't believe it when I first saw it. And it was only after we were able to reproduce it many times, uh, now dozens and, and over a hundred times that I've seen now, that when you activate some of these areas that correspond to the larynx, the voice box, you can actually cause involuntary vocalizations where someone will say, ah, you know, essentially while the electrical stimulator delivers a small electrical impulse to that one part of the brain. And um, again, it's something I didn't really believe at first, but now is a critical part of how I take care of patients. And um, I have to say that that is really the other aspect of this, which to me continues to be um, a miracle is that when you're there in the operating room and you're looking down at the brain, it's really just not fathomable how that tissue there, its only movement are, is just with the breath and the pulsations of the brain with the heart. That's the only movement that you see there, but it's otherwise pretty inert. And it's shocking to me. It continues to shock me how marvelous its actions are, its functions are, to create such exquisite movement and coordination um, that allows us to be who we are as humans. It's just something that um, I struggle to believe as much as I've studied this every day for the last decade. Um, it's the, you know, the disconnect between what I see with my eyes and, and what we can actually read out from the electrodes. It's it's really quite incredible. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. We we end our show with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Made they're roughly about communication, so it's right up your alley. Okay, great. What do you wish you really understood? Well. Um, one of the things we really want to understand is what is a word? And I know that sounds silly as a question, um, but what I mean by that is how does the brain compute what a word is? And I can tell you right now, it's not as simple as a part of the brain that is what we call the word area that, you know, upstream from the areas that we've talked about earlier about the ones that are processing the different speech sounds and the movements in the vocal folds, et cetera. It's not as simple as just a different brain area that is coding words. There's something much more, um, much more complex about how that works. And we're very focused on trying to understand um, how that works in the brain. That one answer opens up a whole other podcast. What do we mean to say? How do we mean to, how do, what influences the way we say it and how it's produced Absolutely. and what word we choose? There's usually a ton of words we could bring to bear on any given thought. And sometimes we can't even think of the one we really want, but these others keep popping up 
What's that all about? I know that's good science um, from my perspective. When one thing you know opens up questions, new questions, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's more than one podcast. It's each one of them deserves their its its own session. Well, here's the second question: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very carefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I I think this is an important thing nowadays more than ever, to be honest, um, across so many different aspects of culture and society and politics. Um, but, you know, I, I, I usually like to, to be honest, I like to hear what people have to say and then propose um, an alternative, basically, in, in a way that's non-threatening. Okay, number three, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I got to think about that one. Um, there's there's a good list of them, actually. Oh, but, give us any one of them. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think one of the strangest questions I've, I've been asked is a question really about the soul. Where is it in the brain? Hmm. And this came in the context of someone who was thinking about their relationship with God and whether that was going to be changed after surgery. And I don't think it was a strange question. It was just one that I was very ill-equipped to answer. And um, and it's something that I don't fully understand, uh, but um, but is is definitely an interesting one that I've encountered over the years. That is, I would, would never have imagined a question like that. That's very interesting. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I do have to say that these are going to be up there in the list of top interesting questions I've had. Uh, <laughs> um, a compulsive talker. Well, I think somehow just giving signals to that person that you're not listening. Um, <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they're interested in picking up your signals, that would probably work really well. Yeah. Feedback is such a critical part of communication. And when people don't get that feedback, um, it, it oftentimes does the trick. That's interesting. I, I, next time I'll try that, of just doing a deadpan reception for them and see how it works. Okay, let's say when dinner parties come back again, I presume someday they will, you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? I usually like to ask people um, who they are and what their interests are and what they do, hmm. starting with that as simply as possible. Good. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? I think the thing that gives me most confidence is empathy. I think that the, um, the intention by which we do things um, has to come from a good place. And in both my work as a physician and as a scientist, um, a lot of it at the end of the day comes from empathy. Um, seeing the suffering you know, experienced by some of our patients and really trying to understand and make things better um, it all it all comes from there, and that gives me a lot of confidence. Actually, it gives me confidence um, that we are working towards things that should be done, and um, and that these are very difficult problems to solve. But it's worthwhile, and um, even if we can't, if even if we can't solve it every time. Last question: 
what book changed your life? Well, I'm a nonfiction guy, and um, I would say that um, the autobiography of uh, Wilder Penfield, who's one of the neurosurgeons that created brain mapping, uh, gave me a roadmap to think about how to do all of the kind of work that we do, uh, which at the time I never thought was even possible. Um, and certainly we have taken things in new um, modern directions. But for me, uh, reading his autobiography was quite quite inspiring and quite eye-opening for me to understand um, how important it is um, to understand how the human brain works and how to do it in the context of caring for other people. Great. Well, one day I hope to read your autobiography and get the same boost. <laughs> I certainly got a boost in today's conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. It was great talking with you. I really enjoyed it, Ed. Thanks. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Dr. Edward Chang is a neurosurgeon at the University of California, San Francisco, where he treats conditions like brain tumors and intractable epilepsy. He's also the co-director of the Center for Neural Engineering and Prostheses. You can find out more about his work at changlab.ucsf.edu. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Alison Mouatri. He's figured out a way to grow miniature human brains, or more accurately, little clumps of human brain cells, in a dish. So we start with um, skin cells from people, and by activating only four genes inside that skin cells, we can turn them back into this uh, embryonic-like uh, stem cell that have the ability to become any tissue of the body. And my lab is specialized in brain cells. So we add factors to drive the cells to become brain tissues, and then they self-organize in three dimensions, forming these brain organoids. Alison Mouatri is using these brain organoids to study the early development of real brains, including the brains of our cousins, the Neanderthals. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.